Hello and welcome to the second season of All I Know. My name is Jen Winkleman and I'm your host for this time where we gather together as if we're around a little campfire and we're there to listen as everyday people tell us some of their stories. Here at this show, we believe that behind every single face, there are stories. And in every story, there are lessons for life that are waiting to be learned by the rest of us. So today, our guest and I will have a largely unscripted conversation, aside from the anchor questions that we use to get into our interviews. And then as our guest story unfolds, if you and I choose to do so, we can catch the truth and knowledge and wisdom that's being shared with us like little fireflies in a jar and then use that as light for our own paths in life. Thanks again for being with us. This is All I Know. Today, everybody, I'm so excited to introduce you, Taylor Frazier. Taylor, thank you so much for being here. Hey, thanks for having me, Jen. Good to see you. Yeah, it's good to see you too. So let's just jump right into our anchor questions and let's answer that first one. Who are you? What do the listeners of All I Know need to know about you in order to be able to make the most of tonight's conversation? So I've listened to your other podcast episodes and I've been thinking a lot about like, how does someone put that in a nutshell? Like, how do they, <laughs> how do you describe like who you are when you have a whole lifetime of experiences? But the thing that it kept coming back to for me is that I'm a storyteller. At the end of the day, that's who I am at the core of my personhood. And that's who I am in my career. Uh, I've worked in the film industry for over a decade now. And um, how we got introduced actually is that I've been working on a podcast Yes. And yeah, so that's like my most recent endeavor. Um, yeah, and I think at the core of who I am, I'm a person who's extremely intrigued by how how people work, what makes people tick. Uh, that I'm really interested to get to know you because I know that you have a background as a therapist. So I think we have that in common that we want to understand what is it that makes me me? What is it that makes you you? Uh, I, I like the idea of like getting into people's psyches and figuring out what makes them who they are, which I think is why I've pursued the craft that I have. And I think really, yeah, at, at my core, I'm like a person who who wants to tell stories, who wants to hear stories, who wants to listen, who wants to learn more, who wants to change my perspective every 25 seconds of, <laughs> oh, well, now I know that new thing. So what's that about? I think that's the kind of root of, of who I am, at least now. I'm, I'm 30. So, you know, lots of things will inevitably change throughout my life. But for now, I think I consider that my core is that I'm a storyteller. And you said something interesting as you were just introducing that idea, basically about kind of having always been a storyteller, that it's not just your professional life. You were a storyteller too in your youth. Oh, totally. I think so. And I think it's funny because my parents, I don't know they think of themselves as storytellers, but they definitely are. <laughs> my mom, when she's telling a story, she's so animated and she talks with her hands. And my father is like known as one of the best salesmen in all of the United States. And so if anyone can tell a story, it would be him. And it's funny, as my brother and I have become adults, we tell stories in really similar ways when we're engaging with groups of people, whether we're telling our own story or if we're trying to be like, Oh no, you, you want to know what happened to Jen the other day that like, we <laughs> it's a family business to tell totally. stories. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think it's like always kind of been in our blood and I didn't know that that was part of who I was or, or that that was such a fundamental part of who I was until I was in college and I was in journalism school and they closed down the journalism school. And oh. I was like, Oh, what am right I in the middle of your do? study? <laughs> Fortunately, it was towards the beginning. I think it was like my freshman year, but oh I didn't have like a backup. And so, <laughs> and so I took kind of a bunch of random classes. One was a psychology class, sociology class, a women's studies class, 
and a film class. And I went into this film class and like, never have I felt more excited and passionate about anything in my whole life. And I immediately switched my degree and I was so nervous. My family was going to be like, Taylor's going to live in a cardboard box for the rest of her life. <laughs> uh, but She's going to be a starving artist. I know. And I was nervous about that because I've always been a driven person. And part of that is like, you need to be able to support yourself and make money and whatever. And so, yeah, that scared me a little bit, but I was like, I've never felt passionate before until this moment about something. And this is it. And this is what I have to do. So and maybe it's a huge blessing that the J school closed. Oh, absolutely. I because, think yeah. yeah, because it's yeah. like you went into this film class and it woke you up. Yeah. Yeah. It was cool. Cause I ended up getting one degree in film and one degree in communications. And the mm -hmm. comm degree was like, a little bit of psychology and a little bit of sociology and a little bit of marketing. So it kind of filled in the gaps. So yeah, it was good. It was really good. Awesome. Okay. So everybody knows Taylor is a storyteller and has been for a long time. Mm -hmm. What about that question that has to do with plotting your life on a spectrum between ordinary and extraordinary? If on one end of the spectrum is a very ordinary everyday life, and on the other end is craziness. Where do you plot? I life? find that like such an interesting question because my immediate reaction is like, no, it's been extraordinary and not it. it, it uh, well, OK, so here's the deal. So I, I say that and then I have this weird backpedaling motion of like, is that a cocky, weird thing to say? Yeah, is that OK to say extraordinary? But then I gave it some thought and I thought, no, there's been extraordinary highs and there have been extraordinary lows. Part of living an extraordinary life is taking huge risk and then living with the repercussions of those risks. And sometimes it's the best day of your life. And sometimes it's the worst, worst pain you've ever felt in your life. <laughs> so mm. uh, I think I've had a very interesting life. I've been very fortunate to meet and work with a lot of really interesting people. I've had a lot of very out of the ordinary things happen in my 30 years. So I would definitely call it extraordinary, which is a part of the reason why I'm making my own podcast. The podcast is based on my own life. And the story begins when I'm 15 years old and there was a shooting at my high school. And the idea behind the podcast is to tell the story of what happens throughout the next decade. What does it look like after the bomb drops? What are the ways in which people heal? Or perhaps they don't. In my family unit, in my community, in my own life, there's been so many extraordinary, good and bad, <laughs> things that have happened that it's begging to be written down and turned into something that people can engage with. And in this case, as a podcast, mm -hmm. and can feel into the emotions of like, whoa, that's some big stuff. So yeah, I guess it feels funny to describe my life as extraordinary, but it has been. I've, I've traveled all over the world. I've uh, lived in three different states. I bought my own home in my 20s. I've cut movie trailers. I've worked on like a this weird rural art center place in Montana. I like, I <laughs> cool. just had a lot of like, I say, I, I say yes to things. That's kind of <laughs> my MO. And when you say yes to things, you tend to get yourself into some unusual circumstances. And so, yeah, it's extraordinary. So I feel like I'm guessing in your answer to this question, you're giving us a little bit of a teaser about where we're going. I mean, when you mention the shooting at your school, is that part of what we'll talk about today? Yeah, we... yeah. Okay, okay. Uh, yeah, I mean, assuming that that's something that you want to talk about, I think it's such an important conversation to have. And it's cool because the podcast is starting that conversation, not just in my own circles, but outside of that um, the Forward Podcast is already in the top 10% of all podcasts globally, which is, which is amazing. Yeah, like crazy and astounding. I mean, congratulations. It's so awesome. It's cool, though, because it feels like, yes, it's an accomplishment for me, but it also feels like it's so much bigger than me. You know, like it's so important that we start having conversations about trauma, about mental health, about healing. And this podcast is a catalyst that allows people to go there and actually start talking about it in an open way. 
And although the conversation is sometimes uncomfortable, it does feel good to say, I'm willing to talk about this so that other people will be willing to talk about this so that people who've been in a similar situation don't feel so alone because everyone I've spoken to throughout this process has gone through something hard, maybe not a school shooting, but everyone has been through something traumatic and had to find their way through and not the other side. And that is not a conversation we have publicly very often. I think there's still a taboo and, and tell me if this is inaccurate, but I do think there's somewhat of a taboo around saying I'm having troubles with my mental health and I'm choosing to see a therapist. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you work as a therapist, so I suspect you know the answer to that question. Yeah, I agree with you. I think we've come a ways in the last 10 or 15 years in yeah. terms of trying to normalize accessing help and actually normalize that we all struggle with our mental health sometimes. Right, right. Because I think a lot of times when we talked about mental health in the past, we get confused about the difference between if we're using the words mental health, do we mean we're mentally ill? Right. That there's like this huge stigma. Well, Jennifer, tell me this. So I was recently filling out an application for something that I wanted to be involved in. And there, there was a a form that said, do you suffer from any of the following mental illnesses? Well, I have PTSD Mm -hmm. and one of the check boxes was PTSD. And I did not check it. Because I even I, you know, I've been pretty public about this. And still I was afraid of like, what will my employer think if they are aware of the fact that I have PTSD? And will they think that that affects my job? Like technically is I mean, it is a mental illness, right? Like, does it count? Like, I don't know. It's like, yeah, yeah, there is something taboo about saying the words I have a mental illness, but I'm pretty sure PTSD is a mental illness, right? Well, and I think just even using those words, the words mentally ill are very archaic words. Totally. Absolutely. Right. So we're, we need to come up with new ways to talk about these things. I mean, technically, yeah. Depression, especially chronic depression, not circumstantial or situational depression. Uh Technically. Yeah. It's a mental illness, but wow, that's so not a strengths-based way to talk about it. No. <laughs> and it really frames it for stigma instead of mm-hmm. framing it as something that's okay to talk about that every human being struggles with at some point in their life for different reasons. Yeah. I mean, there's a gigantic soapbox we could jump onto with this topic, but yeah. I agree with you. I think anything that we can do to try and help people have the courage to share their stories and their experiences, builds community, helps us feel less alone, helps us feel less crazy, and begins to unpack exactly what you're talking about in terms of that fear that we have. I mean, I struggle with anxiety and depression. I have for 20 years. And I'm in the field, and it's hard for me to tell people the truth. I I feel you. And it's this process has been so interesting because in writing the script, I had to do a lot of research about the person who actually committed the crime at my high school, the perpetrator. And in doing that, I came to understand that he had bipolar one and he was not taking his medicine, which means he was manic and he had very, very high highs and very, very low lows. Uh, and when that happens, sometimes you go into a manic state. And in this case, he did a horrible, horrible thing. But in the writing of this story, it also helped me gain some empathy for him because I realized that, like, I have been very, 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 very depressed, same as he was, except I wasn't homeless. I wasn't living out of my Jeep in the woods with no one to turn to and no access to a therapist. You know, like, I don't understand why he did what he did. And at the same time, I can understand why someone would feel extremely desperate and make a really, really, really poor decision when they're suffering from a very extreme situation and they don't have anywhere to go. So not only for my own sake, but for the sake of other people who are suffering from mental illness and perhaps are going to commit a crime, (laughs) we need to be talking about this because what if this whole situation could have been avoided if we could have taken better care of this man and got him some help and, you know, not handed him a gun. I agree. And that's 
uh, part of the reason I'm so excited about Forward and what you're doing with that project. So I want to tell all of our listeners, you're going to get to hear from Taylor about where to find her and where to find Forward as we get to the other end of this conversation. We will make sure that you have that information so that it's at your fingertips and super accessible to you. Um, so don't be distracted by that right now. Try to just sit with Taylor. Um, okay, so we know you're a storyteller who's had an extraordinary life. How would you define success? So this, I, your questions are so good because, <laughs> especially, Thank and you. I, can t- I can tell that a therapist wrote them <laughs> because if I were to answer this question five years ago, I would have given you a totally different answer than I would give you today. Yeah. Um, growing up, I've always been such a just like driven person. And I think part of that had to do with like, I got to get out of my hometown. (laughs) I got to get out of here. I got to make something of myself. And I think at the time that meant you need to work your way to the top in your career. Your career needs to be the only priority. You need to make a lot of money. I was chasing the stereotypical dream of career success, you know? Yeah. And (laughs) I think that's a lot of what we're taught in our culture. Totally. And it's not always a bad thing, I don't think, but it can be if you're a person who's bad at balance, which I was and still am sometimes. Um, So I chased my career so aggressively that I was traveling all of the time. And for like four years, I didn't even have a lease because it was unnecessary because I was traveling all the time. You're like, my hero, Taylor. <laughs> well, but yeah, wait until you hear more and then I might not be a hero. Um, so the problem with that is that eventually in order to accomplish the career goals, you have to put everything else by the wayside. And so I was in Hollywood working on movie trailers, which was very exciting But I had like no community around me because eventually like your friendships fall apart, your relationships fall apart, your bond with your family falls apart because you're not making them a priority and you're not making yourself a priority. I was like sick all the time. I was exhausted, but I got to be like, I'm working on Disney trailers. But like at the end of the day, like none of that matters if you're not happy. If you don't have anyone to share those experiences with, if you can't go home to someone you love and say, hey, guess what I got to do today? (laughs) And so I did kind of a 180 at that point. I finally realized like, well, this isn't working. And so I moved back to Colorado. I bought a house so that I could force myself to be still and not travel (laughs) for at least a few years and got a normal job for a while. And that was all well and good until the pandemic hit. And then I was like, you know what? Not only am I bored (laughs) doing what I'm doing and I need to go back to doing something creative, but here's a pandemic and I'm going to get laid off anyway. So it was perfect timing to be like, I'm going to pursue my dream. And, and I have, so that's been cool. But anyway, in terms of like how I define success, Mm -hmm. yes, it's, I have a really cool resume and I'm proud of that, but at the end of the day, how I define success now is, am I proud of what my life looks like? And am I happy? Mm. (laughs) And I think for all of us, that is a constant journey to try and figure out what is happy. And, um, that's always very elusive, isn't it? It's totally elusive. We talk about it all the time and it's like, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. It slips through your fingers so quick. Totally. And when I, I find myself going like, I'm getting enough sleep. I'm eating healthy food. I'm going on walks. I'm happy. And then I'm like, but I'm bored. And it, <laughs> it's, it's, you know what I mean? Like, it's really hard to maintain that balance between doing the thing you love and that you're passionate about that excites you and also taking good care of yourself and the people that you care about. It's hard. <laughs> Being a person is hard. Do you remember yes. the movie Silver Lining Playbook? Oh, it was a great movie. Yes. I remember someone in the movie and I can't even remember which character it was saying being a person is hard. And that has, it was like this big gong went off in my brain because I was like, what a succinct and perfect way to say it. And I just think it's the absolute truth. We are just all trying to figure it out. Totally. And it's one of those interesting things because I think when I'm this age, then I'll have it figured out. Or when I'm that age or when I accomplished this goal 
And it's like, no one has it figured out. I can talk to my 85-year-old grandmother, and she's still trying to figure it out. No one has the answers. We're all making this up as we go. <laughs> and there we are. Being and a person is are. hard. It, Thank yeah, you, Silver Lining yes. Playbook. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I agree with that. So that brings us to our fourth question, the big one. The big about one. About what are three circumstances or events or for some people they have a hard time isolating particular events but they feel like there's a theme common thread that sort of runs through their life so you can mix those up or do any combination that you want but what would be three things that you think have most shaped who you are so there are three events that pop out in my mind and it's kind of a bummer because these three events are all like depressing events, but I think sometimes those are the things that like really make us who we are at our core. Mm -hmm. And so the first one, if we just like go chronologically, when I was 15, as I've told you, um, there was a shooting at my high school and you know, that's when you're 15 years old, that's when you're like trying to figure out who you are. Just the basic, basic stuff of like being a human in the world. And then you have this giant thing come out of nowhere and it just, it rocked everything. So I think that that is like a big one that happened really early on that has really shifted how I've behaved throughout Ever the rest since. of my life. Yeah, exactly. Um, I, I have to tell you, I'm just covered in goosebumps. I, oh, know, I know this about you because I'm familiar with Forward and that's part of how we got connected. And... Um, Obviously, you know, you've shared this story. So I knew that this was a possibility that we might talk about this. But it's so I'm really struck by how you're able to say those words about what happened in your youth, in your school. And it's like, it just comes out your mouth. Well, I think the part of it, though, is... In, and I don't know that this is the case for all communities that go through something like this. Probably not. But in my community, after it happened, there was very little conversation about it. It was mm -hmm. sort of like an unstated rule that, like, we don't discuss this. We move on now and we don't talk about it. And I think now it's been 15 years. And I think now that this time has passed and I finally got the gumption to say, no, I need to talk about this. <laughs> and I think now that I've finally started doing that, it just is like pouring out of me because I'm feeling so strongly that this is something that I have wanted to talk about for 15 years. And I didn't feel like I had permission to do so. And I finally just gave myself permission. Yeah. And so far I have been getting pretty good feedback from my community of people saying, yeah, the story did need to be told. Why on earth has no one told it? Why is this not important enough to anyone that they've made a movie about it or that they've made a television show about it? like why did it happens all the time. And for some reason we're just choosing not to acknowledge it. So anyway, <laughs> it feels like something that it's like, it's about time we have this conversation. So it doesn't feel as scary now for me to talk about it. So that's, yeah, that's number one. Mm -hmm. And then if we fast forward a few years into the future and here's some spoiler alerts for season two, three, four, five, six, there's eight seasons drafted of forward. So, Oh my uh, gosh, that's yeah, awesome. Yeah. Cause the idea is that, you know, no one gets out of that sort of situation unscathed. The, the trauma follows them around probably for the rest of their lives, but certainly for the next decade. So I want to tell the story of the next decade and how oh. the four main characters, how they how they grow and evolve or don't and like what that looks like. So anyway, <laughs> so in future seasons, you will hear this story. But essentially, my brother had to have a surgery and my brother was also there in the shooting. So like he already had enough on his plates. But he had to he's have younger surgery. than you, right? Yep, he's Just yep. So I we can organize he's the like, family constellation. Um, four years younger than me. Okay. Yeah, and so he had to have a surgery on his chest, which should have been fairly routine, but a mistake was made, and because a mistake was made, he almost died, and they had to redo the surgery four times. What? <laughs> yeah, are you talking was, about? 
horrible. And so that very seriously affected his life. And obviously as his sister, like I love him more than anyone. So that was extremely disturbing to, to see him suffer through that experience. And it was just like, Oh God, here we go again with another tragic thing. Fortunately he's okay now, but whew, that was a doozy. <laughs> and so you were what? 19, 18. Let's see. I would have been, midway through college when that happened so like 20 maybe i'm probably 20 Mm -hmm. about five years later yeah you you have this like near death experience Mm -hmm. and then there's another has a near death near death experience of a loved one five years later (laughs) yep and then probably about five years after that the next doozy comes along uh i was asked to go on a business trip business trip is the wrong word um i was asked to be part of a film crew that was going to a very rural place on a mountaintop in peru because they had discovered basically like a machu picchu that had been undiscovered and it was underneath the water on a glacial lake so the glacier had melted and covered this. Taylor, I know this is like why I'm like, well, extraordinary is that right? Right word? Yes, but this is extraordinary. It stuff, right? is. It's crazy. the right word. You picked the right end of the spectrum. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's <laughs> crazy. But anyway, it started out extraordinary in a good way. It ended extraordinary in a bad way. So we climb a 17,000 foot mountain, which was a crazy thing for me to volunteer to do because I like barely exercise. Like I am not an athlete i am not in shape why i said yes to that like i don't know but well, anyway. that altitude is no joke oh yeah at that i point, mean you're the like air gets thin up there bleeding. yeah yeah there was like a doctor along with us to make sure that we none of us were like running out of oxygen so yes you are correct about that <laughs> but anyway to make a very long story shorter there was a small team of people who were scuba diving to go underwater and like document what was going on in this temple thing that was underneath the water. And anyway, one member of our team went under and he never came back up and we still haven't found his body. So we had to <laughs> evacuate off this mountain and it was crazy and it like, it was bad. It was really bad. And like one of the guys was paralyzed because something had happened when he was coming up. And so he was on the shore of the beach and we were like wrapping our bodies around him to make sure he didn't freeze to death so we could figure out how to get him out of the water. He's now like running marathons and stuff. So he he's okay. But he was paralyzed because there was a bubble in his spine. I don't know that much about scuba diving, but... Anyway, it's just been crazy, and that's just I, three of the crazy stories. So it's going to be one cannot hell of a even podcast. process. Like my <laughs> mind is still back on the underwater temple. Yeah, yeah, oh. I know. It doesn't sound real. I don't know. Even the good things when they happen is really like, what is going on? Six months ago, my friend was like, "Would you mind photographing my birth?" And I was like, what? I don't photograph (laughs) births. I don't know how to do that. I take portraits. (laughs) And But I was like, okay, because I don't say no to things. And the podcast was supposed to premiere on New Year's Day. And I was like, okay, just don't have the baby on New Year's Eve because I have to, like, do all the work to get the podcast up on the internet. Right. And so... Of course, New Year's Eve hits. My boyfriend's banging on the bathroom door and he's like, Taylor, you're not going to like this. The baby's being born right now. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Of course she is. Of course. Because that's just how life works. Uh, Murphy's Law. Yes. (laughs) Which it it was super exciting. I've never seen a baby be born. I know nothing about birth. Um, So it was extremely exciting. But I like got there like 20 minutes after the phone call. She was already dilated six centimeters. She has the baby in an hour and a half. And then I go back to work. And I'm like, someday this is going to be a good episode. That's the beauty of the podcast. Now when things happen, good or bad, even if it's like really bad, it's like, this is going to make really good media. (laughs) this is okay because i can make something from this this is fuel for working with (laughs) exactly it's gonna be a good story someday oh my goodness seeing a child be born is a pretty incredible experience i've had it twice and you've had a baby or because you watched a baby never had children but i have been present in the room during the delivery of two of my friend's children it's amazing, right? It's amazing. Did you cry? I wept like a baby. 
I wanted to cry so much, but the she wasn't crying. The mother wasn't crying, and I was like, Taylor, you cannot fall apart right now. If that mother's not crying, you cannot be the one who's weeping in the corner. Like, hold it together. <laughs> oh my gosh! Yeah, no, if it she is. Cried, I would have bald. It is such an amazing experience. I don't know how someone cannot because it's just so completely overwhelming. It's pretty incredible. I'm happy that you had that experience because yeah, it's, that was one of the good extraordinary stories. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's pretty epic. So we're going to talk today, we're going to take a deeper dive, I'm guessing, into the shooting that happened when you were 15. Yeah. Okay. So it's time then to tell us whatever of the story you can and want to in this format, knowing that everybody has an echo or a second, even better opportunity to hear your story by actually listening to Forward. Okay. So how do you want to tell it with just your voice? Where is the right place to begin? Yeah, this is intriguing because I haven't done this before um, in terms of like actually sitting down and telling somebody the whole exhaustive story. I think any of us, when we go through something awful, we come up with a Cliff Notes version of the story so that when someone asks, we can just be like, Okay, well, this happened, done. And then you can change the subject. Mm -hmm. And creating the podcast was an opportunity for me to explore every detail that I normally wouldn't talk to people about, including the really gnarly stuff of what was in my nightmares, that kind of stuff. So as you listen to the actual podcast, you'll hear uh, even more in depth of what happened beyond what our conversation can include today but essentially you know i i lived in a a small town up in the middle of nowhere in colorado and i think a lot of people choose to move to the middle of nowhere cuz they just assume nothing bad ever happens mm-hmm. city small life town. is scary yeah <laughs> yeah exactly small town not a lot of threatening things going on so well, and the know, colorado mountains are pretty idyllic too i think a lot of people are kind of chasing that living in a fairy tale because you can kind of get close to it in the mountains of Colorado, actually. Yeah. I think that's kind of the dream, but what people don't know is that, uh, a lot of people who are not very normal human beings choose to move to the mountains. (laughs) So it's a, it was a strange community. Um, not that it was all bad, but often people who choose to move to the middle of nowhere are hiding from something. <laughs> so there were a lot of really just kind of peculiar people and peculiar circumstances going on to begin with. But in this particular instance, it would have been my sophomore year of high school. And what I know now that I did not know at the time is that uh, the shooter, he was kind of oscillating between living in like a kind of a motel that's in Denver that's actually pretty close to where I live and then part where of the time, you live now where I live now mm-hmm. um I learned this from reading his suicide note which was that was dark few hours that I read that but anyway he he would either live in this like little motel or he would live out of his jeep and he would go park it out in the national forest somewhere uh, up near where I lived and so rumor has it that he was kind of poking around and like going to the local restaurants and like people had seen him in town. I had not seen him, but people had. So that day just, it began like any other day. My mom worked at the school. So I like was at her desk talking to her being a teenager. And um, a friend of mine was standing at the desk as well. And I like handed her a note as high school girls do and said, okay, I'll see you later. And like, little did I know that she was about to walk into the classroom with a man with a gun. So she walked into her classroom. I walked down the hall to my classroom, which is a couple classrooms away, I guess. And, you know, our class just started out as a normal day. It was just, I'm in math class. I don't like math class. Here we are. And then next thing you know, we hear an announcement come on the intercom system and say, attention, code white, we have a code white situation, please lock down or something to that effect. And we're like, what is a code white situation? Because at the time we didn't do drills, like we didn't know what that meant. 
right kids train for this now yeah which that is an interesting thing i would be curious to hear your thoughts on whether or not that's a good idea because apparently it's fairly controversial as to it it is controversial um so as a person who works as a school counselor (laughs) right now i have no idea how my district would feel about me commenting publicly on whether or not i think it's a good idea Sure. So that's a little bit tricky, but not speaking as a representative of the district, just speaking as a person who has worked as a clinician and has kids' best interests at heart. I actually think that considering the prevalence that we see of violence in schools, that it's probably good for kids to have practice to know what to do Mm. in case something really happens. But what I wish that we were better at is some of the care and containment leading up to that and after it. I feel like doing it like a fire drill, which would also be a huge tragedy, right? I mean, obviously that's it, but it's different. It's different. And so I wish that we had a little bit more in place in terms of what we do, you know, before and after. Do you think it's appropriate for like little, little kids? I have friends who are like, yeah, my kindergartner came home Mm -hmm. and they made them sit in a bathroom with 40 other kids for three hours in the dark. And I'm like, well, that doesn't seem great for their psyches when you're that little. But like, I don't know. I am surprised to hear that the drills run that long. I can only speak to the drills that happen at my school, and they're definitely not three hours. But the first time that I went through one was chilling for me. And I thought, if I am feeling this way about it, I imagine the kids are feeling even, even more. And I don't. I don't want them to be, you know, traumatized or stirred up or feeding anxiety about these kind of things happening. And on the other hand, it's like we got to deal with with what's there. Yeah, no, I, I, that's true. I just and I don't I have no idea what the answer is. And I've never been part of a drill. So it's hard for me to say whether or not it would have been more or less scary. I can say that I think there. <laughs> It's possible you would take it less seriously if you'd already done a bunch of drills. You might Mm -hmm. not realize that it's real. And Mm -hmm. that part to me is like a little bit concerning. I also just wonder what it does just in general to a child's psyche for like their entire childhood that they're running those drills. I did an interview on somebody else's podcast the other day. And the interviewers were both 22. And so they were saying their whole lives they've done drills, uh, which is, you know, different than the way I've grown up. And it's just kind of part of the deal, but I think it's also like really disturbing to them and stressful to them. And my friends who are currently teachers say that now they're literally keeping like kitty litter boxes under the teacher's desk in case of a lockdown so that the kids have somewhere to go to the bathroom. And that to me is like, we should be outraged by that, (sighs) that we have gotten to a point where that is normal. And that we nobody blinks at that is that is extremely disturbing. Uh, well, anyway. for whatever it's worth, there's no kitty litter at my school. Yeah, I don't know. Right. I don't yeah. know. I don't know. It, this is such a complicated issue. It's it is. It it's is. so complicated, and I don't. I don't know what the right answer is either. <laughs> yeah, I feel really torn because you want to help kids be prepared for whatever they may have to deal with, and hopefully. It's a non-issue and not anything they ever have to deal with. But I I really like your question around how does just the preparing shape them? Yeah, I don't know. It's just interesting. I it would, is. would be curious, read an article on that or something. I don't know, but it, maybe that doesn't exist. <laughs> well, it wouldn't be a bad idea for somebody to do a study, right? Yeah, it seems like at this point that would be fairly important that we know the ramifications of that. So, um, so in my situation, yeah, so we went into lockdown And of course, they like turned off all the lights. They huddled us into the corner. They have a protocol where they put paper over any glass in the window. So if the shooter's wandering around, they can't see you in the room. Um, And then they have a system where you put a card that's a certain color underneath the door to indicate if the people in your room are safe or not. And it is my understanding that they evacuated the rooms that were furthest away from the shooter first. 
So we were in there a long time, like at least a few hours. Because you were just a couple doors down. Right. And so we could hear gunshots. But, you know, when you're a kid, even if you're not a kid, you can't wrap your brain around something like that. And so there were a lot of different sorts of emotional reactions happening in that room. And for me, I was trying to calm everyone down. I'm the kind of person who wants to be able to always have control over situations. So I'm telling everyone, like, it was just a door slamming. Of course it was a door slamming. And then meanwhile, there's somebody, like, crying hysterically in the corner, which of course they are, because that makes sense looking back on it. And then there's someone making, like, horrible, crude jokes because they don't understand that it's real. So So there was a real mixed bag in terms of, the students, at least in your classroom, even understanding what was happening. You guys didn't know what code white was, for one. So there's that question mark. Did you guys have, I don't know what the right way is to ask it, but did you have a working knowledge of what lockdown meant? No, not at all. So you were put on lockdown, but you didn't even know what that meant. Where my students today, they know what that means. Yeah, no, we had no idea. And Columbine had happened in 1999, I believe. And it was April 20th of 99. Yeah. And the shooting at my high school happened in 2006. So there's like a seven year gap between the two. And I think that Columbine happened and everyone went, that was awful. And that'll never happen again. Well, then it happened again. And after... It happened at my school. Then there were copycat shootings very soon after. And people started doing the same really twisted stuff that happened in that room. And it started happening all over the country. And that is kind of what set off the phenomenon that is today, where it happens so consistently, kind of started at at my school, unfortunately. But are you saying the need for training was kind of born out of what started at your school and then trickled out? More specifically, I think the fact that it is so common started Mm -hmm. that day. I think that kind of unleashed people who were like already uh, had a screw loose (laughs) and were wanting to do something violent. I think what happened at my school gave them permission to do so. And it kind of unleashed a whole generation's worth. (laughs) Not that you can track it all back to my school, obviously, but I think... The fact that it happened so consistently, it had never happened that consistently until what happened at my school. And then all of a sudden it became something that is in the news every other day. Um, What do you think made this shooting different in that way? Like, what do you think it was about it that propelled, propelled other, other incidents and copycats? I don't know. I it's hard to know, like, what goes on in the psyche of someone who's willing to do something like that. But, you know, it was publicized a lot. This was a weird deal because, like, no one asked my permission to take my picture. But apparently my picture was on the cover of magazines in Estonia. So, what? like, yeah, so, like, the, wow. the word got out about what he did. And what happened is very disturbing because he was like a random guy who was in his 40s and he wandered into the building he took this classroom hostage he claimed that he had enough bombs to blow up the school it turned out uh, that he did not but that was part of like how he managed to create the amount of fear that he did he kicked out all the boys and then he kicked out all the girls who were not blonde And then he slowly started narrowing it down to a smaller and smaller number of girls, and he made them stand up against the chalkboard. And so when that happened, other people who, you know, had violent proclivities started doing exactly that. They could copy it. It's like they had a formulaic way of like, here, now I can go do this exact thing in another classroom in another state and they did. But why that happened, I don't you probably know better than I do, because like, I, I don't have a degree in, <laughs> in psychology. Um, <laughs> well, I didn't. To be honest with you, I didn't know the history that the shooting at your school toppled a bunch of other dominoes. If you yeah. had just asked me before we had the conversation, I would have gone back to Columbine, like you said, mm-hmm. even though there it was really, a gap. That is a very important a notable event. It was a horrible event, but it is interesting that there was a seven year gap and like why there were not shootings during that time. I don't know. And then all of a sudden there's over 300 shootings since Columbine within 
well, okay, so if mine was in 2006, then that means within 15 years, there's been over 300 shootings in the United States. That's a lot. Like something weird. Like I think that's an interesting word you use, like a domino effect. Something strange happened there, right? Like a gateway. Right. Yeah, it's weird. I don't know. I can't, I don't know the answer to that question. Mm-hmm. You were in math class. And Mm. you guys were put on lockdown. You didn't know what that meant. You didn't know what a code white was. Mm -hmm. Some people are crying. Some people are making jokes. By this time, do you guys have any sense of what's really going on? Or is it still a guessing game? I mean, there was no way of communicating with the people who are in the classroom. So we still didn't know what was going on. I mean, at a certain point, your instincts kick in and you realize, okay, (laughs) clearly something serious is going on here. This is not just a funny thing, because if that was the case, it would have lasted five minutes, not hours. So at some point, logically, you know that it is real. But I think the part of your brain that's trying to compute the reality of the situation is still telling you that it's not. So eventually, like SWAT guys came and like banged on the door and scared the bejesus out of us and said, "Okay, you're coming with me. And I think at that point, your brain finally is, oh, (laughs) we've been in like real danger this whole time. And those were gunshots that I was lying to everyone and saying that it was a door slamming. And when they evacuate you from a shooting situation, they make you put your hands over your head to indicate that you don't have a gun. Because they don't know that there's not more than one shooter. They don't know that there's not a shooter in the woods. So basically they give you like a quick spiel of, okay, we're going to need you to run. (laughs) And it is possible that someone will be shot at while you are running because you're going to have to run down these stairs and then behind the school and then across a, a parking lot where you're, you know, If there was a shooter outside, which fortunately there was not, but we didn't know that, they could have taken someone down. And and we were instructed, even if someone goes down, you keep running. And (laughs) so by the time they got us out, we were one of the last classrooms to be evacuated. And then they had us go into a gym that was the next building over. And that was also extremely eerie because they're doing like roll call. And so we knew exactly who was in the room. We knew exactly who was missing. And before the last people had been evacuated, they start putting us on buses to take us to the neighboring town to get us out of there. And so as we're loading up on the buses, we see like a helicopter landing at the school to take away our classmate who little did we know had just been shot. It was like an ambulatory, like a flight for life. Yeah. Yep, exactly. So like, as we're pulling out of the parking lot, uh, that's happening. And, you know, it's teenagers who are scared and shocked. And so they're saying things that are completely inappropriate and like making stupid jokes. And I was, you know, hysterical about don't you understand what's going on right now? Like, well, how can you be making jokes at a time like this? And anyway, they um, took us out on buses and by the time we made it to the next town, that was the weirdest. It was like a circus is what it sounded like, because all of a sudden you hear this eruption of cheers and people are so excited because they think their kids on the bus. And then there's also people sobbing and there's sirens and it's but it was this weird combination of like really happy people and really devastated people. And there's people like banging on the side of the bus. Is my kid in there? Are they alive? Oh, um, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> Yep. And then by the time they actually got us to somewhere where they could park us, the reporters are so thick, the kids can barely get off the bus. So we're having to like wade through reporters who are putting microphones in our face. And, and you guys are just picture. kids. Right, exactly. I mean, it, like, Who've I just like yeah. actively traumatized. Totally. Yeah, if, I don't spend that much time around kids but I've recently spent time around some people who are like 14 15 I don't think I realized how young that is uh-huh. uh because I think when this happens to you you just immediately are like I'm a grown-up now uh but when you meet somebody who is actually 15 you realize like no that's still a kid that is still mm-hmm. very much a kid mm-hmm. uh and that is a really terrible thing for any human to go through but for people that young what a ugh, disruptive that's not even, that's not the right word. I don't know what it just, just a terrible, terrible thing. And anyway, so, so then my family got out of there 
went home. And by the time we got home, we had, you know, like 400 missed calls or something from every news station in the world and um, tons and tons and tons of voicemails. And we turn on the news and they're announcing that this young woman has been killed. And it oh, horrible to go, oh, my gosh, like this, this is all real. That really happened to us today. And then I think we just kind of divide and conquered. We just kind of went to our own spaces to like cope, but we didn't cope together. I don't remember As a there family. Being, yeah, you I don't did. remember there being like, let's have a hug or none of that. It was just like, oh, that was horrible. Now we need to go, I don't know, decompress or whatever. And that's kind of where the really interesting story to me begins as to what happens when a whole community overnight has PTSD and no one will talk about it. Hey everybody, it's it's Jen and I'm cutting in here. It's hard to cut in here because what Taylor just said is so profound. What happens when in a moment a whole community is in a traumatic situation and very likely going to be suffering symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder and nobody's talking about it? Oh my gosh, we have to continue the conversation. Please come back to join us next time where we'll pick up with the second half of Taylor's interview and continue to hear her experience with this horrific event and the aftermath. I want to thank you for listening in today. When our guests agree to be vulnerable with us and to share from the well of their life experience, one of the best ways that we can acknowledge that kind of courage is to communicate that what has been shared has fallen on ready ears and a heart that is open. So if there was something that struck a chord today, please interact with the posts on social media that are related to this episode so that you can let that storyteller know about the impact that he or she had on you. If you haven't connected with us already on one of these platforms, you can find us on Facebook and on Instagram under the handle All I Know Podcast. Please remember that the ideas, opinions, and views shared today belong solely to each speaker. And while we hope our listeners find fuel for working with in their own lives from every episode, it should be noted that this podcast is not a therapeutic intervention and it's not a substitute for advice or counsel from a mental health professional. All I Know is a production of Inward Bound, which is a private psychotherapy practice based in Denver, Colorado, and our team works primarily with children and their families that have been impacted by developmental or early childhood trauma, and we specialize in adoption and foster care issues. This podcast is produced by Jessica Barry Edelstein and me with audio engineering by Craig Knapp. If you're interested in developing a relationship as a sponsor for this project, or if you're interested in being a guest and one of our storytellers on All I Know, you can reach us at know at inwardboundco.com. I'm going to give that to you one more time. All I know at inwardboundco.com. And you'll never miss an episode if you visit the website so that you can subscribe or follow the show through your preferred streaming platform. And the way to find us on the web is to go to allIKnow.podient.co. We hope you'll join us for the next installment of All I Know. And in the meantime, this is Jen for all of us at the show reminding you, catch all the light you can. <laughs>